Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times, data with the Wednesday Night Wars edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, Getting Over is back with an absolutely loaded show today. Not only are we going to talk the awesomeness that was NXT Halloween Havoc from Wednesday night, but AEW Dynamite delivered us a loaded episode with a couple damn good matches as it continues to build towards full gear. We have a lot of show for you today, plenty of pro wrestling to talk about, and I'm going to do it with an extra party. Normally, the Silver King goes solo on these Thursday shows, recapping all the great Wednesday night action. Today, I'm going to bring in someone I've known for quite a while, a big-time wrestling fan who, like me, ensures he gets to watch both NXT and AEW on Wednesday night before he goes to bed. None other than Chris Bangle. I know that Chris and Chris Vanini, same first name, totally different person. This is not an alter ego. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. I want to give people a little bit of background on you. Obviously, you're going to be a new voice that people are hearing at least for the first time today. You know, how long have you been a wrestling fan? And you know, talk about your background. Like, were you a WCW guy growing up, WWE guy? What is your what has your life in pro wrestling been like up until this point? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on, Adam. It's great to be here and talk an epic night of pro wrestling that we had last night. Um as far as my wrestling background, I'm, you know, was a WWE fan back in the day. The Attitude Era was kind of when I was growing up. Um, so Stone Cold, Rock, you know, all the big names. Mm-hmm. Um, WC, I was also a WCW guy as well. I would say I was more WWE, but I did also partake, partake in WCW. So it was kind of on the fence with the Monday Night Wars, just like we have now on Wednesdays. So I would say, you know, I'm kind of on both sides of the fence, but I was always a WWE guy first and, you know, still kind of lean that way even these days. Yeah. You know, I kind of flicked, I guess, between commercial breaks on raw to see what was happening on nitro, but I never watched nitro over. I can't think of a single time where I watched nitro instead of raw or where like I tuned into Nitro for the main event over the Raw main event. Like it was always supplemental wrestling for me. Yeah, I was kind of the same way. I feel like, like I would occasionally, this is speaking at our age maybe, but actually have to tape WCW if there was something good that I wanted to right. see. Big right. NWO moment, big title match, you know, what have you. I would record it, but I was never choosing WCW over WWE by any stretch. Yeah, for all you youngins who have only dealt with like DVRs, which by the way are incredible, and like that got introduced into the world, I guess at the end of my high school career into college. Um, I used to, you're right, use VCR tapes to not VCR tapes, but tapes uh, to to use my VCR to tape Nitro, and it was always crazy because you were taping something you weren't able to see, right, and scheduling it on a channel that you weren't watching, so you always just had to assume that it was going to work. And it did, shockingly, but that's what I used to do. I used to tape WCW. I used to tape ECW because where I was living, it came on at 2 a.m., which was just a little too late for me. Right. Uh, but, I, but I would watch those shows. But again, it was always supplemental. And WCW, many weeks I didn't tape. I would tape it if it was something like, hey, we're going to have Hulk Hogan and Goldberg in the main event. And then it's like, okay, yeah, I'm going to have to see that. Right. I have to see what happens here. But 
most of the time I was watching Raw and kind of flicking over to Nitro when I had the opportunity. So with that said, you know, again, we're trying to give people a little bit of perspective on your wrestling fandom here. For me, there was a gap of time uh, early, the first couple of years of college where I did not watch wrestling, got back into it towards the end of college and then watched a little bit here and there and really just picked up probably in the last six or seven years back to the level I was at before. Was there a, a period where you didn't watch, where you maybe weren't particularly interested in the product or has it been all the way straight through? I would say there actually was a period like um, when I graduated college in 2011, but kind of the maybe like the last two years of college, I kind of faded out of it. Um, so probably from like 2009, 2010 until probably like 2014, 2015. I think okay. The first, I think when I first came back, it was like, I think it was WrestleMania 30 um, was the first one I kind of came back for. And then that got me back into it. But I was, I, mean, yeah. I kind of did fade out for a while. I don't even know what it was. It's just, I think it just got busy and kind of it wasn't a priority. Well, it's life. It wasn't the product that it was, you know, when when we were watching during the Attitude Era, which was right. top tier stuff. And even the early 2000s kind of really continued that. But it did fall off in a significant way. The characters changed. And yeah, you know, a lot of people did that. Now, what about NXT? With AEW, I believe you've been watching since its inception, just like me. Obviously, it's only been around um, on TV for a year. And, and in general, I guess the better part of, you know, I guess 18 months or something like that. But uh, NXT, how, you know, when did you start watching NXT and was it something that you were into, uh, you know, exclusively, not exclusively, but primarily, I guess, on the network and then you just kind of followed it to, to TV or are you a new NXT viewer? So I'm, I'm not an original NXT viewer, um, you know, back when like you know, Seth Rollins and when they were first transitioned over from FCW mm-hmm. into NXT, um, I wasn't watching then cause like I said, I kind of fell off until like maybe like 2014, 15. Uh, but you know, I got back. I got back into it. You know, slightly after that, and I'm trying to remember what the first. I probably got back into it when like Kevin Owens, Finn Balor were there. Were mm-hmm. you know, when Finn Balor was there the first time. Kevin Owens, um, that era. So I'd say like 2015. I got back into it, but ever since then, you know, I watched every week on the network, even before it switched over to being on TV, and obviously now, even more excuse to watch every week. And I always make sure I watch both, even though, you know, you know, some people feel like you have to be on both sides of the coin. Like, Oh, you have to be an AEW guy or you have to be a WWE guy. If you're not your mark or whatever, but you know, I always watch both. I find it. I find it ridiculous. There's a couple things I find ridiculous. One, that people think you have to choose. It you don't, you you, you never did. I mean, during WWE and WCW, there was a, it was really fun to choose, right? Because everyone was a wrestling fan. Right. So you were able to, you know, talk about it in school and you'd see people in NWO shirts, people in DX shirts or Austin shirts, and you were a kid. So it was fun to do that. But as an adult, I, it makes zero sense. This is not a sports team, right? It makes no sense to choose a side and hurt yourself by not watching or not being able to appreciate or accept good wrestling on the other brand. Like for all of WWE's faults, especially recently, they've put on some banger matches. The storylines, particularly on SmackDown, have improved dramatically. And the product is, it's way better than it was before the pandemic. Let's get that straight. NXT has always been incredible wrestling, not always like since its inception, but since around the time you're talking about that 
2014, 2015 type time up until present, NXT has truly been incredible. So imagine being someone who was watching NXT this whole time, AEW starts, you're like, well, now I don't want to support WWE. So I'm going to prevent myself from watching NXT. It makes no sense. So I've always hated that tribalism. And what I hate even more than that is, and this really does stand out for AEW fans more than NXT fans, not that I'm trying to make a distinction here, but there's this weird thing where AEW is trying really hard and they're not WWE. So any criticism of AEW is unacceptable. And I just find that ridiculous because no wrestling is perfect. And while AEW is very good and very entertaining, it is not really that much different from WWE and NXT. It's largely the same sports entertainment product but they do certain things a lot better. And they also do a couple things, such as women's wrestling, way freaking worse. So oh I'm, an e- I'm an equal opportunity praiser and an equal opportunity criticizer. And, you know, people don't always like that when it comes to AEW. I get comments occasionally like, you're being too tough on AEW. You're not being fair. And it's like, no, I'm every podcast that I tape, I tell you exactly what I think, honestly. And it's not because I like NXT more, although I am an NXT original fan. I was a fan of NXT before AEW even started. I watch every show. I've never missed an AEW pay-per-view. I've never missed an episode of Dynamite. I know. Do I watch Dark? No, I don't. Okay. But I also don't watch 205 Live, right? So I have to limit my intake somehow. I'm a huge sports fan. I watch, you know, movies and TV as well. I, I can't, I can't watch, you know, eight extra hours of wrestling. My point being, it's good to see that you're kind of of the same mindset of, Look, AEW, good wrestling, new product, everything's cool. But you know, we're gonna we're gonna talk about it fairly. We're gonna criticize it when appropriate. We're gonna praise it when appropriate. See, that's my thing. Like, I just like my favorite thing is like seeing on Twitter people be like, "Oh, well, you know, AEW, it's just all it's just all WWE's trash that they didn't want anymore." Like, that's not the case at all. Like, even not if at all. Guys, you know, fall out of storylines or are not being you know prominently featured on TV, like. They're still great wrestlers and they're going to find a home somewhere. So like, why do you have to differentiate that, you know, you know, just because WWE, WWE, excuse me, threw them out that, you know, AEW is all of a sudden trash. Like, I just I hate that narrative to no end. You, it's also just not accurate because it's not. The, the biggest stars there, WWE did not throw out. Chris Jericho chose to go there. He Cody, chose to something new, yeah. Yeah, Cody, Cody chose to leave WWE. Rusev, Miro may have been released, but he was someone who wanted his release. Yeah, so he wasn't going to stay there anyway. So. Yeah, and, and John Moxley let his contract expire specifically to leave WWE. So the four biggest names that have come from WWE over there are not trash. Now, look. Cardona, um, you know, uh, Sean Spears, are they, did they get signed because they had some name value and because they're Cody's friends? Yes, of course. right? And do they bring much, add much to the table? No, they Probably really not. don't. They really don't. But, but that's not the case for most of them. But what I, what I do think is interesting and what's really important about AEW, and we'll get into the show right after this, is some of their best talent has never stepped foot in WWE. You're talking Hangman Page, Kenny Omega, Pentagon, Phoenix, Wardlow, MJF, and like, I could go. I could keep yeah, going. Right? Archer. Like there's just it's, yeah. I mean, so they have a significant level of talent there. Sammy Guevara. I like, happen to love Sammy Guevara personally. I do. As uh, well. Santana and Ortiz. So they they just it, it's a very 
well-rounded product, but even with it being well-rounded, it's not perfect. And there's usually a few things at a minimum to criticize. Look, Dynamite, truthfully, has put on a couple trash episodes of TV this year. Now, most of them have been very good, but there have been some that have been pretty bad. And when that happens, we're going to call it out. Uh, Just like if NXT does a bad episode, I call it out here. The good thing, Chris, is neither of those happened on Wednesday night. We got two absolute banger episodes for killer hours of wrestling. Now, before we get into these shows, a couple of reminders for you all. You can follow the Silver King on Twitter at Silverstein Adam. You can also follow Chris Bangle on Twitter. Chris, what is your Twitter handle? My handle is CBangleCBS. And most importantly, even if you follow both of us, follow the show, Getting Over, on Twitter at Getting Overcast. And of course, you guys know there's one more piece of business. Need you to head over to Apple Podcasts, drop us a five-star rating and review. Every time there's a new rating or review that comes in, it bumps us up, gets us more listeners. The numbers are going up. The profits are up and we want the smoke. On this podcast, it's working out. Like I said, we were the number 33 wrestling podcast on iTunes or on Apple Podcasts last week. That's up two two weeks. We were in the 60s, then the 40s, now 33. It's because you guys contributed to those reviews and because you guys are listening, telling your friends and sharing it on social media. So I really appreciate all of that. It is now time to talk professional wrestling and we are going to start with NXT Halloween Havoc. Now, I'm not sure the last time that WWE did a show other than a WrestleMania, maybe a SummerSlam or a TakeOver that felt as special as this one did from the very second it went on the air. The intro to Halloween Havoc made it feel like a takeover off the bat. Shotzi Blackheart looked like a million bucks. She was grading steel. And we went right from that incredible intro into a live heavy metal guitar entrance for Damian Priest, who gets in the ring and is banging his damn head off, okay, with his hands on the ropes. Johnny Gargano comes out. He tears apart the huge jack-o'-lantern Total heel move. It's a really nice touch. Um, and because the fans really wanted that, Jacqueline, and they always want that pumpkin right in the middle like the old Halloween Havoc sets used to have. Then we see the ring, and it has orange ring ropes, which was a really nice touch as well. A lot of the fans were also dressed up. And the graphics, not just the match graphics, but the video packages and the you know picture-in-picture play-by-play, all of that stuff had a Halloween theme. So NXT and WWE, they really tried to make this special. And I felt like they succeeded. The only thing I wish that they did that they did not do was keep the set lit up during matches because a lot of the Halloween imagery was on the video boards, not the main set. It was all the side sets that had the tombstones and the and the spider webs and all that type of stuff. So that would have been my one nitpick from a set perspective. Nevertheless, this was really impressive. I was a little surprised, honestly, at the care they took and put into making this actually look like a Halloween Havoc. They went above and beyond my pretty high expectations. It totally felt like a takeover on TV, despite there not being a world title match. Four of the matches were pay-per-view quality. I'm not sure, Chris, if it was the best NXT TV show that we've ever seen. I'd really have to think it through and compare it if someone gave me some other options. But it's definitely at that level. And Easily a top five NXT television match or television program ever episode, maybe the number one episode. I just thought 
They killed it. It went above and beyond expectations. And you guys know long-term listeners, especially over the last few weeks when I've been talking about Halloween Havoc, I said WWE and NXT, they need to make it simultaneously serious because they want to have big matches and campy because it's a Halloween theme. And they threaded that needle perfectly on Wednesday night. I absolutely agree. I mean, you're talking about the first Halloween Havoc since, what, 2000, I believe it was? Yeah, 20 Uh, years. So, you know, to get that nostalgia for any wrestling fan is awesome. I don't, like you said, the the Johnny Gargano slash and the pumpkin, as soon as he came out, I was like, please do something to the pumpkin. You have to play that heel card. And he did it to absolute perfection. You know, we had the wheel and, you know, not to get ahead of ourselves, but throughout the match, Johnny kept taking shots at the wheel and complaining about it. So I thought like he played that heel card 100%. And, you know, from top to bottom, the pay-per-view was phenomenal. There's no other way to say it. Like, even a lot of the promos were phenomenal. Well, what's what's indicative of that is you called it a pay-per-view and it wasn't, right? Like, it, it exactly. felt like yeah. it, it legitimately felt like it was a takeover on television. And that's both good and bad. It's good because a takeover is incredible, right? We know historically no that take, takeovers do great, you know, uh, not ratings, but they get good match ratings, right? But it's also a television show, so you get commercials that interrupt a lot of these great matches. And that was really a bit of a problem with the first. So what we're going to do for NXT Halloween Havoc is we're going to kind of start with the spin the wheel, make a deal, double main event. So the match that opened the show and the match that closed the show. And then we'll get into talking about everything else. We'll start with the North American Championship, uh, where Johnny Gargano beat Damian Priest to become the new North American Champion in a Devil's Playground match. Now, this basically was a false count anywhere match. That, That was what the rules were. Priest came in dressed like Sting, while Gargano, I think, had a Beetlejuice thing going on, not the Howard Stern Beetlejuice, the Michael Keaton Beetlejuice. Okay, there's clearly a difference between the two. Um, Priest used the stairs really early on Gargano, then wrapped him up in the pumpkin during one of the commercial breaks. He hit Gargano was south of heaven by lifting him over the ropes. Gargano answered with sliced bread onto the steel steps, which I thought was a really cool spot. Uh, Priest drilled Gargano with broken arrow on the desk. Gargano got scared by a skeleton that fell out of a casket. Super kicked it, which I thought was hysterical. Oh, that was that may have been my, one of my favorite parts of the match. I'm not. Gonna it was. Lie. It really. It was one of the best parts of the show. It was really oh, funny. Absolutely. Uh, Priest booted Gargano to hell through the set, and then right as he did that, it went to a full screen ad. A lot of what I just described actually happened during commercial breaks in picture in picture, and I have to say the commercial breaks were pretty maddening to me. We missed a lot of action, even though it was in a split screen situation, and. You contrast that with what AEW did to open their show. And I believe it was 17 minutes commercial free to open AEW. I don't know if that was specifically a ploy to keep viewers away from NXT, or I don't think they normally go that long without a commercial break, but that is how you need to open the show. And if you're able to do that and you're WWE or NXT, then you should do that, especially when you have a match of this quality going on, or at least keep it to one commercial break. They went to two in this match and it was just, it, it killed me every single time that they stopped uh, well, or not stopped, but that the action was diverted to a smaller screen. Yeah. I mean, that was one of my biggest things too. Like, you know, I feel like sometimes if I'm watching, you know, a SmackDown or a raw, like, you know, if not all that's happening, maybe I'll even, you know, fast forward. But like, I feel like it kind of asks people like not to pay attention. Like you're going to look at this tiny screen. That's, you know, not even half the size of your TV on top of the commercial. Like, I don't know. It's just hard. I feel like it's hard for, might be hard for some people to focus on that. And you're kind of 
you're not gonna like you know mark out if something crazy happens because you're probably not paying as much attention. Well, yeah, and you don't have Vic Joseph and Wade Barrett telling you to mark out because commentary is a big part of the experience, right? The, oh, absolutely. Oh my God, I can't believe that happened. And you're like, wait a minute, yeah, that was pretty crazy. Like if you look, yeah, if you're looking down, you know, maybe you're on your phone or whatever, but you have it on in the background. Then you hear Vic Joseph like, oh, off the top rope, like you're gonna right, and then you look, and then you look up and you see the replay, right? right yeah, exactly. Ex- exactly. So anyway, they come back from, but I was, I was really, this was really the only match where it affected me. Everything yeah. else, the rest of the show, it ended up it being okay. Yeah, and they and they kind of worked around it, which kind of said to me, hey, look, they really should have just saved one of those commercial breaks and gone to and from a break maybe for the Haunted House of Her- uh, Terrors match. That was a weird, uh, weird name for a match. But um, they, they it just was too much in this one match, and it really took me out of it. But that doesn't change the fact that the match was incredible. So they come back from break the second time. They're at the wheel using a metal trash can. Priest is set to hit. Uh, Gargano with the reckoning when all of a sudden a guy in a scream costume comes out, hits priest with a steel pipe. Gargano then nails a DDT off the wheel, runs up the wheel to hit a DDT. The scream guy, we assume, uh, hands Gargano a tombstone. Gargano breaks it over priest. Priest falls off the stage and goes crashing through a shack. Gargano jumps down, covers him and gets the one, two, three. This was a really entertaining falls count anywhere match. Forget about the commercials. I loved how they ensured it stayed within the Halloween Havoc theme by using cost the guy in a costume and the tombstone as a weapon. Before we talk about the person in the screen mask, we'll hold that for a minute. Let's talk about the match itself. I thought it was incredibly inventive and entertaining. And look, I did predict Johnny Gargano winning the title here. It made a lot of sense, given the fact that there would be a stipulation basically with a no DQ in it. So I thought they got the booking right. I hate to see the title come off Damian Priest. But as I said previously on our last show, Priest over these last few months as champion has really developed himself in a significant way into a main eventer. And NXT right now, if you're not going to count Gargano and Ciampa as main eventers, because really they were in that picture for such a long time, you don't really want them operating in the main event picture. Then you need to kind of look around and say, who are established main eventers? And aside from Finn Balor, there really aren't any. There's a lot of mid-carders and upper mid-carders. And I think what this accomplishes is it inserts and moves Damian Priest from upper mid-card right into the main event because he is ready for an NXT title opportunity. I completely agree. I mean, like you said, I wasn't surprised in the slightest that the title came off of Priest just because, you know, couple months ago they plant the seeds for the gargano way he's this full heel turn turns on champa at the take at takeover you know i felt like if they would have had him lose again it just wouldn't make sense it would have been all for nothing so i kind of once that once the stipulation was announced, so like okay someone is going to interfere he's gonna you know hit a low blow something's going to happen where gargano is going to be able to win the title it just it made too much sense and then as far as priest i completely agree he's been He's been off the charts the last couple months. When he first came into NXT, I wasn't, I hadn't really seen him too much, you know, on the indies and stuff. So I wasn't really too sure what to expect. And he was fine starting off. But, you know, the last couple months, I feel like he has definitely earned my respect, you know, full on. And I think if, you know, once they decide to put the NXT title on him, you know, maybe in the coming months and get him in a feud with Finn Balor or whoever. It's going to be awesome. I think he's going to tear the house down. He is. He, he's just been incredibly impressive. And 
They did a really smart thing elevating Keith Lee using Dijakovic uh, T-Bar, as you may know him now, uh, for for that role. But Priest was always there lurking, right? And he came in as Punishment Martinez out of Ring of Honor. And I had the exact same thought. I've said it on the show numerous times. I saw him, I'm like, Punishment Martinez is one of the worst wrestling names of all time. It's terrible. This guy was this guy was mediocre. Um, I don't get it. I don't know why they would sign him. It doesn't make sense. And he comes in, he doesn't do anything. And all of a sudden, he come, turns into Damian Priest, and they put him in a couple programs with people who can really go. And you have seen his game elevated to a completely different level. People say, hey, just because uh, NXT says it's developmental doesn't mean it's developmental. Sometimes they bring in indie people and and those people are already established. And so therefore they don't count for WWE developmental. BS, because guess what's happened? They've developed Damian Priest. They've also developed Cameron Grimes and Bronson Reed. These are all guys who were talented and were known before WWE, but it doesn't mean they were ready for prime time. Damian Priest, you could go and stick him on Raw or SmackDown tomorrow and you would believe him as a main roster WWE superstar. This was an incredible past couple of months for him. He deserves the, he just deserved, duh, in, in past tense now, the title reign that he had. And Gargano and him tore the freaking house down in this match. So this was really damn good. I don't normally give like star ratings here, but for a false count anywhere match, this is over four stars for me. Just totally entertaining. Both guys got over, the right person won really good booking and very good use of the Halloween Havoc gimmick, as I mentioned, to have someone in a costume, someone in a mask, be the person to interfere rather than just a wrestler, like someone maskless and you know who they are now. We, we're curious. We want to watch NXT next week and find out who it was. So that's the next question, Chris. Who was it? So for me, there's really only two options. Option one, which I don't think it is, is Tommaso Ciampa. And that's just because of long-term story. You know, I thought crazy for thinking that when he, when it first came out, I was like, at first I was like, you know, would they do something stupid, like make it Candace, but why would she dress up? But then I was like, what about Tommaso given their history? But at the same time, like he's going to be involved in a program with Velveteen Dreams. So what would, what would that have accomplished? Well, that's what I was going to say. Even if I had like a, in my mind, a 10% thought it might be Champa. Once they cut the promo later in the show, we'll talk about that in a moment. Right. I was like, okay, it's definitely not Champa, right? Exactly. So that leaves me with one person. And that one person is Austin Theory. Because if you remember a couple of weeks ago, I believe it was two weeks ago. It might have been last week. I think it was two weeks ago, though. No, it, it was definitely two weeks ago. Uh, Gargano and Theory went one on one. They tore the house down. Right. Theory t- took Gargano to his limit. And after the match, Johnny turned around and was like rubbing his chin. I was like, wow, that kid's impressive. So. For me, it was clearly foreshadowing that he was going to help him. I mentioned it on our preview for Halloween Havoc on the show that I thought there would be interference in the two matches for the Garganos, and I thought Theory would at least be one of the people helping. There's a mask. Theory quit. It makes all the sense in the world that it's Theory, and Gargano brings him back next week, and all of a sudden, he's part of this demented Gargano family that they have going on, and they roll with it from there. Yeah, I mean... I think that's really the only logical one. I mean, I've I saw some people on social media saying Indy Hartwell, but there's I just don't buy that. Like I get that she was involved, like she gifted them the TV a couple weeks ago and was sort of involved, but it especially like which we'll get to later, obviously that interfe- you know that figure made multiple appearances, and there there's no other one that makes sense than theory, especially after he quit, like you said. Yeah. 
there's just I couldn't wrap my hand around anyone else. Like I'd have to throw if I was a betting man, which I am, I'd say all my chips would have to be on Austin Theory. It just doesn't make any sense to be. Yeah, he, he'd be like he'd be like a minus like two fifty or three hundred favorite easily. Right for this, so that that's my expectation. You know, before we move on, and I definitely do want to talk about um, the figure reappearing in the next match. But before we get to that, we did mention Tommaso Ciampa, so let's talk about that really quick. I thought he caught an us awesome promo, saying it didn't feel like NXT anymore because the attitude and culture had changed there. Everyone feels like they deserve things. That tweets will get them over complaining about stuff on Twitter instead of just working hard and proving that they're the best. Champa called out both Finn Balor and Velveteen Dream. So we're going to have Champa against Dream next week, one-on-one. Presumably, if he wins, his he will be eyeing Finn Balor, going after him for a challenge in the future. Balor, right now, we still don't know his status. He ended up having uh, jaw surgery for his fractured jaw. And I think they're almost doing a wait and see situation. The expectation, I believe, is that he might be able to come back in December. The problem, I think, is my guess is they're going to try to do a War Games pay-per-view in November. So then you don't have the champion on that show. You also don't want to take the title off of him because you just had to take it off Karrion Cross for getting injured. So they're just in this weird spot with the NXT championship. But somehow, Halloween Havoc was so good that you forgot it was basically a pay-per-view without a world title match on it. And that just goes to show how good the event was and how good the booking was for everything. But what did you think about Champa's uh, promo here? I thought it was great. I mean, Tommaso Champa has always been one of my favorite heels. You know, it's I didn't mind him when he was a face, but it just doesn't have that same appeal to me. He's the perfect heel. And the fact that, you know, he called out Velveteen Dream and said he can't get out of his own way, which... You know, obviously, Velveteen was off TV for a while and, you know, hasn't really done much since he's been back. He's gotten into it with Kushida a little bit, but other than that, hasn't really done a whole lot since he's been back. So I think, you know, Champa laying the seats for that feud. And I think their match next week could definitely tear the house down. I don't have any doubts about that. So I thought it was awesome to see him cut kind of an epic promo like that. I did see Dream in that last match, that triple threat. It was the best he's looked since he's come back. That's he had he had been rough for a while. Um, but yeah, I think he found something there. And, and certainly we've seen him work with Champa before and then tear it down at a takeover. So the fact that they get to do that again is pretty awesome. Okay, so let's move on to the main event, the women's championship match between Io Shirai and Candice LeRae. It winds up being a tables, ladders, and scares match. It was a pretty smart um, name for a match like this. And it was weird too, because when it started, I didn't think that they were going to take the title and hang it. I just thought they were going to use, you know, ladders, even though that's a TLC match, you know, or normally a TLC match. It's funny you say that because when they spun the wheel and that's what it came up as, and then the match started, I was like, I, it didn't even dawn on me that the, the title was above the ring until maybe until, I think Vic Joseph said it like it didn't even dawn on me that the title is going to be suspended above the ring. It took a while, like definitely halfway through the match, I think, until that was made clear that that's where it was. Because they just for both um, of these matches, they just started them. So like Devil's Playground, they're like, all right, it's Devil's Playground. Ding, ding. And it's like, wait a minute. Are are you not going to bring out an electric chair or like like something gimmicky that you need to use in this match? Right. And even for tables, ladders and stairs. I thought, hey, they might announce it and then like people might come out of the back with like six uh, ladders. 
right? Or, or tables and, they, and put them around the ring really quick. And then they come back from commercial break and start the match. Instead, they basically had to make the gimmick themselves. Like, yes, they needed to use ladders, but they didn't technically need to use tables. They just chose to and pulled them out from under the ring in order to use them. You know what I'm saying? So it was just a little strange how that transition happened, but nevertheless, it happened. So th- this match, tables, ladders, and scares, I thought it was a really good stipulation. I did think the match was going to be really short because the entrances began with 13 minutes left and the match started with 10 minutes left by the time Shotzi spun the wheel and they chose the match. They chose the stipulation. So you guys know, I always talk about it. NXT main events, AEW main events, minimum 15, 17 minutes, ideally 20 plus. And NXT and AEW both have been doing that a lot recently. So when I saw that, Io Shirai, Candice LeRae 3, their third matchup after the first two tore the damn house down, would be 10 minutes. I was really depressed. But what was great is that USA Network gave NXT an overrun. So this thing wound up going into like, I think 10.06 or 10.07, and they ended up getting about a 17-minute match. And so Silver King was really happy about that. The ladders were painted black and orange. They pulled body parts out from under the ring. Tables had chalk uh, body outlines on them, like for dead bodies. Just really nice touches overall. But this match was an absolute banger. Shirai went for over the moonsault with LeRae atop a mountain of chairs. She dodged it. Shirai started selling a knee. LeRae beat her with a chair, but Shirai dropped LeRae with a brain buster onto a chair, which was maybe my favorite spot of the entire match. As Shirai tried to capitalize, she missed a meteora, landed knee first on the ladder, continued selling that knee as an injury. Then she trapped Candice LeRae's ankle between a chair, twisted it. So now both of them were selling injuries, which theoretically would make it tough for them to get up the ladder. Uh, Shirai missed a 619, got drilled by a chair in the back. LeRae hit a twisting neckbreaker off the ring apron through two tables. Someone in a scream mask then runs out to your point earlier, puts LeRae on their shoulders and lifts her to the top of the ladder. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, this is the perfect finish, right? Like she's, she's slumped over on the ladder. She wakes up a little bit, gets the title, wins the match. And Io Shirai is a totally good reason for losing. You're not going to hurt Io. She's basically dead on those chairs. And Candice not only didn't just climb up the ladder and win, she was helped to the top of the ladder to win. But that's not what happens. Instead, Shotzi Blackheart runs in, takes out the scream dude with an electric chair as Ray is slumped over on the ladder. Shot, uh, sorry, uh, Io Shirai sets up a second ladder. So Lorray ga- gouges her eyes out, basically, and Io Shirai falls off. Lorray gets a hand on the title, but Shirai is totally fine, tips the ladder over and throws Candice Lorray from the top of a ladder through another ladder at ringside, uh, leaning between the ring apron and the announce table. She crashes right through it and breaks it. Larray looked dead. Shirai couldn't believe what she just did, but she climbed the ladder anyway, grabs the title and retains her championship. So this, Chris, were two of the best women's wrestlers in the world going to battle once again. It was a grade A banger. Everything Shirai and Larray do together is a banger. This one was at the top of the list. What I'll say is this. We talk about the phrase fight forever a lot. These two are the definition of that. I could watch them wrestle every week and know the match would be different and endlessly entertaining. This was an incredible main event. Kudos to Io Shirai and Candice LeRae. 
is what Xavier calls it. It's what I had watching this match. It was amazing. I mean, there's no other way to put it. I mean, the amount of just the great spots that we had throughout that match, and then for it to end, you know, you had the figure getting involved again. Shotzi jumped in, so it was complete chaos. You think, you know, Candice is going to win the title, and then all of a sudden, you know, Shotzi pops in, runs interference, and then the final spot of her crashing through the ladder where I literally said out loud, she's dead, because I thought that was such a good sell the way they ended that match. And then Shirai gets the title. I, I'll say I was a little surprised that Io retained. I thought, you know, even in a somewhat short title reign, she's accomplished a ton and really put herself into the stratosphere. I feel like, you know, if they took the title off of her, it wouldn't be a big deal. But, you know, especially with, like I said, with the Gargano way storyline, I just thought that, you know, they'd have the dual champions. The Garganos would have both belts. but you know, they kind of swer- swerved me a little bit, but, you know, either outcome, I feel like I wouldn't have hated. That's my problem as well, because just like with the Randy Orton uh, ambulance match, they created via storyline a match that gave the face champion a total excuse for losing the title and not in one of those bad WWE ways where you're like, oh, that's so like eye rolling. I can't believe that's how they're taking the title off them. They booked it in a way where it would have made complete sense and been totally acceptable. And in both cases, that ambulance match and here, they didn't make the title change. So while I loved this match, I loved this match. I can't stress for you how much I freaking loved this match. Okay, but I don't really like the booking of Gargano winning earlier in the night and LeRae losing here. I thought they'd go all in, like you said, with the power couple dynamic. Instead... For now, it looks like Lorraine is almost going to be back to being Gargano's wife as opposed to his equal, where you weren't thinking of them as, you know, Johnny and his wife, Candice Lorraine, but Johnny and Candice. And that's the entire gimmick that they have been building recently. Gargano even was putting himself second in numerous storylines in order to help Candice Lorraine make an ascension up the women's division. So I thought that was strange. They were spending time building up Lorraine, and now it seems to be switching back. I hope that's not the case. And it's not that I wanted Io Shirai to lose because she's incredible and she's done a great job, by the way, as champion. My guess is they're setting up Io Shirai to lose either to Rhea Ripley or probably more likely Ember Moon at this point. But both of Gargano and Lorraine winning with help from the screen person or people would have made sense and possibly set up a faction. Now, you mentioned Indy Hartwell earlier, and I certainly mentioned Austin Theory. I think the storyline that has been planned for this power couple, Gargano family situation is a foursome. I actually think we're going to get Austin Theory and Indy Hartwell. And, you know, this is a little bit of dirt sheet. It's not really a spoiler, but Indy Hartwell was apparently supposed to be at TakeOver, but was unable to. Um, I think for quarantine reasons, just uh, out of precaution, you know, I I believe it's precaution, not positive test. So I believe that Hartwell was supposed to be a person in a scream mask getting involved in this main event, but instead it was theory, I think, in my opinion, doing both roles. So I do think ultimately with this person being masked in a costume, they have the ability to go and say, hey, yeah, that first one was theory. And that second one was Indy Hartwell. 
But now that Harwell was, wasn't there, and now that Candice LeRae didn't win, I don't know if they're going to go in that direction. So this storyline that I thought they really had nice and tight, it kind of feels like it's like, you know, you know like you're in your house and there's a, a air leak. So you, you're cold inside the house, but your energy's running. You know, it's, it, it's leaking out into the hot air. It kind of feels like there's a leak in this balloon almost. And that this was all nice and tight, but there's a hole somewhere that needs to get filled. So that's my one issue with it. But man, this was a killer match. Um, you know, it's tough to give stipulation matches. Like you're not going to give it five stars or anything like that, but this was like a, a 4.25, 4.5 star match. Totally entertaining. Great main event and big time credit, by the way, to WWE and NXT. They had a loaded show. What were the two major matches in the final hour? This match and Rhea Ripley against Raquel Gonzalez. Yeah, I mean, there was really, you know, it was just, you know, kind of the perfect storm. You know, you, they started off the night with an absolute banger with Gargano. And then you end it with, you know, one of the best women's matches that we've seen in a while. But, you know, kind of not to be outdone with the last, what, 45 minutes were, you know, two epic women's matches. Rhea Ripley, Raquel Gonzalez, that was a heavy hitting affair that, you know, went back and forth. And, you know, I think, you know, that might be kind of the forgotten match because Io Shirai and Candice tore the house down. But I don't think you should take anything away from Rhea Ripley Ripley and Raquel Gonzalez by any means. That's the most action I've had all year. And yeah, I mean, that's how I feel about that match. I was going to save it, but since we kind of got into it, which is probably my fault, We'll move to that now, and then we'll talk about the rest of the show. Rhea Ripley versus Raquel Gonzalez could have main evented any regular NXT TV show. That's how good this match was. This is the fight we have been begging to see for months. It was a freaking hoss fight, as expected. Big meaty man slapping me. <laughs> Again, not sure if that's applicable or appropriate when it comes to women, but they were. They're, they were two big, strong women slapping the absolute shit out of each other here. Uh, Gonzalez caught Ripley during a flip outside. She caught her, grabbed her, and put a powerbomb into the hockey glass. She got a lot of offense on the former champion. Ripley tried to do an avalanche riptide, which is what she did to Mercedes Martinez to win that cell match or the cage match, I guess. But Gonzalez got down, tossed her off the top rope. Ripley got out of Gonzalez's finisher, hit her with a head scissors into the turnbuckles, and drilled Gonzalez with the riptide to get the win. I know some wanted... Raquel Gonzalez to go over here, but Rhea Ripley is still being rebuilt coming off that NXT title loss. And she needed this. I'm not trying to overuse the term. It's just accurate. And it happened in AEW too. This match was a total freaking banger. All right. Two women just beating the shit out of each other. And dude, I loved every second of it. Uh, I mean, there's no doubt about it. Like, you know, aside from the two matches, like this might have been, you know, my favorite part of the show because they just were, like you said, beating the shit out of each other. They were going at it um, and it was just nonstop action. You know, you look away for a second and, you know, they're both down. They're both kicking each other, whatever. It was just it was nonstop action. You know, the kind of it was a good, good segue into the main event. I think, you know, kind of a great appetizer, so to speak. After having, you know, in the middle of the show, you had some of the other promos and stuff like that. I just feel like this was the perfect segue into that final match. And they just, they tore it. They tore the house down. There's no other way to say it. They did. 
And there's actually not even, there's so not another way to say it that like we can't even continue talking about it because that's how you say it. They tore the house down. It was great. It lived up to expectations. Really good moment for Raquel Gonzalez in particular because we know what Rhea Ripley can do. This is the first time we really got to see Raquel Gonzalez and said, she's everything that I thought she could be and maybe a little bit more because she can cut a promo as well. So that was a damn good match. We'll run through everything else that happened on NXT. They did the costume competition with Wade Barrett uh, doing the heel commentator shtick. I love that they teased it last week. They challenged each other to a costume contest. So you knew there was going to be a payoff right on the show. And Barrett basically hung Rick Joseph out to dry or Vic Joseph. I call him Rick. I have no idea why. Vic Joseph out to dry. Uh, That was funny, especially with Joseph looking really stupid dressed as Waldo while Barrett was just doing his own character, Bad News Barrett. It would have been really funny if they picked a match like Santos Escobar, Jake Atlas, for example. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Had they picked a match and he'd done the match as Bad News Barrett. I just wish he had done that. But other than that, I just thought it was really funny and good, uh, good heel commentator shtick, as I said. Yeah, it was just, I feel like it was just a nice kind of mix up, you know, to tone it back down. It was just, you know, a funny little, a funny little moment where, yeah, Vic Joseph looked like an idiot. And, you know, obviously Bad News Barrett is not going to ever shy away from being the heel, whether it's in the ring or on commentary. I mean, he is easily one of my favorites for that reason. And I just thought that the way he was able to mock Vic Joseph just, it definitely gave me a chuckle for sure. And while I really like Vic Joseph, by the way, there was a few weeks ago, I gave a little bit of criticism to him. I just said that, hey, look, it's very tough to replace Mauro Ronaldo, especially the level of excitement Mauro gets during matches and four finishes. And Vic, while he's he knows technical moves and, and he's very smart and good on commentary, sometimes he doesn't get to that level of, of excitement. He doesn't reach that level. That was not the case tonight uh, or, or this night for Halloween Havoc. He fully was immersed in the matches and I felt the importance of the matches and the finishes because in large part of Vic Joseph and Wade Barrett did a very good job as well. But Joseph deserves a lot of credit, in my opinion, for the job he did. Also, someone who deserves a lot of credit for their work on the mic is Pat McAfee. Man, this guy is a promo machine. He talks for a living. He has his own radio show podcast. So there's no surprise, but McAfee has charisma and skill to be great in this business for a long time if he wants it. He did a great job explaining the storyline with Ridge Holland getting hurt, why he then turned and recruited Oni Lorcan and Danny Birch. It seems to me, based on the way this thing broke down, it was going to be McAfee and Holland, and that plan B was going with Lorcan and Birch. O'Reilly and, surprisingly, Pete Dunn, Kyle O'Reilly and Pete Dunn, came out to the ring, Dunn brought chairs, And you think, okay, they're going to go three on two here. Undisputed Era is hurt. It's a good way to introduce Pete Dunne back to the United States audience. It was a great surprise for him to be there. And then all of a sudden, Dunne turns on O'Reilly with the chair, joining McAfee and his crew. This is now two twists in a row in this storyline that I did not see coming. The first being Pat McAfee. The second now being Pete Dunne linking up with Pat McAfee. So now I wonder... Hey, was Dunn meant to be part of the original crew? Was it supposed to be McAfee, Holland, and Dunn? And the change in this is going from Holland to Lorcan and Birch to kind of fill that gap. I'm not totally sure, but we now have a foursome, no question about it. Uh, The leader is certainly Pat McAfee. These four looked awesome together. 
And it definitely seems like we're going to be getting a four-on-four Undisputed Era versus the people I just mentioned match at War Games. When they introduced McAfee last week, I got to be honest, there's very, I feel like there's, I don't want to say very few, but there's not a ton of times where I'm just like, they completely swerved me and I, something I just completely don't see coming. And Pat McAfee being back, I didn't see coming at all. But when Pete Dunne came out, when he gets on the ring apron with Kyle O'Reilly, he hands him a chair. I'm like, as soon as he like steps forward, I was like, they're, then I figure, okay, they're probably going to have Pete Dunne stab him in the back. But up until that point, like you, you wouldn't think that, you know, he's going to come back and be a heel right away because he was a face for so long before COVID happened. But I, I loved it. I'm a big fan of, fan of the bruiser weight. I've, Loved him for a while. So, you know, it's awesome to see him back on TV. And, you know, you have that, you know, you know, British connection with Birch and Lorcan. Like, it makes sense from a booking standpoint, but it's just not something that I thought was going to happen. But now that it has, it sets up a War Games match that could be one of the better ones that we've seen since they brought that pay-per-view back. I actually think, just a little point of point of correction, I actually think Oni Lorcan's American. Um, is it from from Boston or Massachusetts? Maybe you can Google it while I'm talking. But uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure he is. But uh, Holland certainly was British, and that there is this connection between you know something with Dunn and Holland, and certainly Danny Birch, where you wonder why that's the direction in particular they're going here. What I will say is Pete Dunn looked like a million bucks, and I had recently been watching catching up on NXT UK. I saw Dunn there. I don't know if he went vegan or if he just spent the entire quarantine isolation period during COVID working his ass off. But the guy looks like he's somehow dropped 20 pounds when you didn't even think the guy had 20 pounds on him to drop. He looks incredible. What I thought was interesting is at the end of this, when they jumped into that Escalade and drove off, Dunn wasn't really excited to be with Pat McAfee and these guys. It almost seemed like it was a means to an end for him. So the question is, Maybe he stepped into that Holland role. Uh, maybe he's just being paid to do this. Maybe they tell a storyline where he was stuck over in England and McAfee, through his connections as a celebrity, was able to get him overseas. And therefore, that's why Dunn is joining with him. But I have a feeling that Dunn won't be with this group long. Like, I think it's just going to last until War Games and then Dunn will turn on them. But hey, like, I could be wrong about it. One way or another, it was a huge surprise for him to show up. I lo- I'm a huge Pete Dunn fan. And working with Pat McAfee and these guys, man, it's just, it's really exciting stuff. I thought this was a great segment. Yeah. And by the way, Oni Larkin is, was born in Boston, which I did not realize. Boom. I, I mean, so kudos to you. I did not know that. Um, as a New York, as a New York sports fan, largely, I spot people from Boston very easily. Trust that's me. true. <laughs> but um, yeah, like you said, it's just whatever way they're going to go with this done storyline, joining up with them. I'm here for it. No matter what, you know, like yeah. if, if he if he was paid off, if you know whatever the case may be, I just think because when Ridge Holland went out and you know Pat McAfee comes back last week and you, you figure okay, well they had to swerve because Ridge Holland goes out, but I I honestly had no idea who they were going to go with to fill that fourth spot because obviously you know my first inkling is it's going to be a war games match it has to be, but. You know, where they were going to go, I had no idea. And now the fact that it's Pete Dunn back and that's who they're going with, I just think it's awesome. And, 
you know, I'm thrilled to have Pete Dunn back and see him wrestle again. Yeah, in any way that he's back is good. And um, it was nice that they gave us a bit of a tease on that with NXT UK. Again, I'm just catching up on those really because I want to see this Walter Elijah Dragunov fight uh, on Thursday when we're taping this. So I've been trying to catch up on storylines and fast forwarding a couple things. It's tough to get there, but yeah, uh, Dunn looked incredible on that. And he certainly looked incredible here as well. So next we had Santos Escobar, the Cruiserweight Champion, defeat Jake Atlas in a non-title match. Legado del Fantasma looked awesome with Escobar wearing the Rey Mysterio-inspired 1997 Halloween Havoc gear, all three of their faces being painted for Dia de los Muertos. Atlas hit a sick cartwheel DDT. He does that basically every match, but it's great. And then did a Tope Cannonball, Tope Con Hero, over the referee to take out Legato. The referee got distracted. Raul Mendoza put on the loaded mask and drilled Atlas in the head so Escobar could hit his finisher and get the win. This was well-wrestled, a short match, that shouldn't and couldn't have gone on much longer. I love Legato Del Fantasma, but for me, it really is time to take the cruiserweight title off Santos Escobar because just like with Damian Priest moving up to the main event, Santos Escobar needs to get out of the cruiserweight division and either be in the mid-card division on NXT, the main event division on NXT, or just be on the main roster because the guy's ready. The whole group is ready. I completely agree. I mean, I believe you said this last episode that you know santos escobar could go to raw or smackdown and compete for a mid-card title and no one would blink an eye i think he's that good and you know not to say that the cruiserweight title you know brings people down but i know i would think the casual wrestling fan probably isn't you know completely hyped when there's a cruiserweight title match i mean they do tear the house down more often than not but i just feel like you know a guy like santos escobar Maybe you're underutilizing him, you know, continuously having him hold the Cruiserweight title. I think, you know, he could easily vie for, for to be the North American title or, like you said, if he does jump up to the main roster, I don't think it would be a hard sell at all. He's what everyone thought Andrade could be. He that, actually he that's actually That's a great is. comparison. He actually is already. like, and, and it's in large part, look, candidly, it's in large part because of his promo skills. He has the look and the and the wrestling ability and the promo skills. And giving him a group like Legato is great. I would honestly love to see Andrade join them. Not necessarily in NXT, but I just think it would make a lot of sense. You have this faction warfare situation happening over on Raw. You have her business. You have Retribution, which whatever. I can't even believe I'm mentioning Retribution on our Wednesday night show. <laughs> uh, but, but if you brought up Legato Del Fantasma and added Andrade to that group and had them be like a two-headed monster with the other two guys being a tag team, that's a really successful faction. Right now they're a group and I feel like they just need one additional piece to really go over the top. But there's a lot more here from NXT or a couple more things from NXT. They did another pre-taped Ember Moon promo, which is exactly what I sh- said they should do last week. Accentuate the positives, eliminate the negatives with her. That's what they're doing. It's cool to see her without makeup. I think maybe the first time ever like on TV, looked totally great. Uh, and I'm really excited for this match with Dakota Kai. So I just thought it was a nice presentation for Ember Moon and, and she struggles. I've said this before, before, Chris, on the show. She struggles with the live mic in front of a crowd, even a small crowd. When you're able to taper and present her that way, she comes across as a total legitimate badass. She does have, definitely have, and, you know, without makeup is certainly a different look. And, you know, I just think it, it, it's worked since she's been back. You know, putting her in a program with, you know, you're not obviously going to have her come back and just vie for a title, but have her, she pointed out herself, Dakota Kai was 
you know, a scared, you know, scared of everybody, scared of Shayna a couple years ago when the last time Ember Moon was in NXT. And the fact that, you know, she could bring up that to start the feud and, you know, can kind of say that Dakota Kai has completely transformed, you know, her gimmick, who she was, all that stuff. And, you know, I think they are going to have a great match once that eventually happens, which I'm assuming we'll get that in the near future. But next week, next week. Oh, that's right. That's right. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think they're going to tear the house down and I, I can't wait. I'm, I'm definitely excited. I've, I've always been kind of a huge Ember Moon guy. So, you know, I'm glad to see her back and I think she's going to kill it. We also had Dexter Loomis against Cameron Grimes, defeating Cameron Grimes, no surprise there, in a haunted house of terror match. This was hysterical with Grimes begging William Regal not to do the match at first. He gets forced outside into the parking lot. Suddenly, Michael P.S. Hayes jumps out of a van blaring Bad Street, which is the fabulous Freebirds theme. That was awesome. Uh, They then go full horror comedy, cinematic vibe, which was really the only way to do this match. It's impossible to describe, so I'm not really going to. But it was entertaining seeing Grimes be such a coward, yet stop in the middle of a haunted house to try to bang a girl in the shower. Grimes, then after he got scared more times, ran all the way from the house back to NXT, got stalked by more zombies than he had seen initially. Suddenly, smoke fills the ring. The entire set turns blue. Loomis kicks Grimes' ass. Grimes hits a zombie with a cave-in out of nowhere. Another one, who I think was Casey Kentanzaro, maybe it wasn't, climbed on Loomis. He picks her up, throws her into Grimes, and then submitted Grimes with the chokehold for the win. We give extra credit to Wade Barrett for this line. Zombies are legal in this matchup, which he said right as Dexter Loomis uh, threw the zombie onto Grimes. Uh, After the match, the zombies crawled on Grimes. I didn't necessarily love it because I'm not a horror movie or Halloween person who like really pops for that type of stuff. But it was great. It was really entertaining and funny. If you are a person who loves the horror genre and Halloween stuff, then this was may have been even your favorite match of the entire night. It was really well done. It was actually the best, I think, cinematic match that NXT has done because some of their prior ones weren't really successful. And the biggest point I have is it was so much better than the House of Horrors match between Randy Orton and Bray Wyatt. And when you consider what that was for, the WWE Championship. And then you think about this, it's, you're just like, how was this that much better than that? This was a success. And on a Halloween Havoc show, it definitely had its place. No, I, I definitely agree. I mean, you know, when you're having a ha- Halloween Havoc pay-per-view, I feel like, you know, they played off that theme so well with the, you know, with the setting and all that stuff. But just to have one of these type of cinematic matches was, you know, it played with the genre really well. I'm also not a horror movie guy. I'm not a huge Halloween guy. Like, it's fine, but I can take it or leave it. But it kind of did give me those, that House of Horrors match vibe between Orton and Wyatt. I mean, you know, was it on that level? I don't really know. You know, that was three years ago, so I'm trying to remember back. But I think that they definitely played it really well. And I just, I couldn't stop pissing myself when he was when Cameron Grimes is begging William Regal not to make him go out. Will you come, like asking him to come with him? And it was just I just thought it was hilarious. And just to see heel like Grimes that scared. And I just thought it was awesome. Yeah, please, Mr. Regal, don't make me go. And then why don't you come with me? You know, like come with me, right? (laughs) It was so funny. So funny. I do want to correct myself. House of Horrors was not a WWE title match. It was a non-title match. 
uh, one oh, Bray Wyatt. Right. I don't. I was thinking it was yeah. too. Well, it was on payback. It was after the WrestleMania match. It was just a mess. That thing was absolutely yeah. They ruined, they ruined that program big time. Yeah, that was terrible. Do have a DM slide from J Mags at J Mags three sixteen. He says Cameron Grimes really breaking through with this Halloween Havoc cinematic match. Uh, where do you think they go with him after he's done with Dexter Loomis? Is a call up to Raw a possibility and eventually have the character build with the Fiend? No, I think you're kind of taking it too far a little bit, J Mags. Uh, he's really just getting started on NXT, just starting to build. He's got another year or two there, no question about it. But Cameron Grimes is legit. People love him. The To the Moon stuff is great. He's such a swarmy, annoying, funny heel. He can be a tweener. Like he just totally works in that role. I'm really excited for Cameron Grimes' future on NXT. Now, last year, before we move on to AEW, the Drake Maverick, Killian Dane stuff, it continues to entertain me. Uh, you know, I don't know if you've heard me on the show, but I talk about how smart this is and how funny it is and how well done it is. I love them as a duo. Now that they that Drake Maverick has gained Killian Dane's respect a little bit, seeing them interact a little bit more normally, almost as somewhat friends or acquaintances, is enjoyable. Maverick dressing up as Hollywood Hogan and them doing the spot with the Yeti and the giant from Halloween Havoc where they squashed him together. Just really funny callback. I know that's old and a lot of people may not have gotten it. On our Twitter account at Getting Overcast, I posted a video of the reference that this was making. So go watch that video. Just really funny stuff. And then you see Dane come out as the Shockmaster but he refuses to be the Shockmaster because he doesn't want to trip and fall and make an arse out of himself, as he said. I just thought it was really funny in a good backstage segment. And again, NXT badly needed tag teams. These two work for me as a tag team. No, I, I completely agree. I'm 100% here for Drake Maverick and Killian Dane. You know, I hope they take this, you know, if, if they don't put the tag team titles on them eventually, I'll be disappointed. I just love this gimmick. They you know, even from the beginning, like even when Killian Dane, you know, hated Drake Maverick, you know, oh, no one takes you out but me and punches him to the ground a couple weeks ago. Like it was, it's just constantly enjoyable. And to see Killian Dane kind of step out and, you know, have the stormtrooper head on and just, just be funny. I just think the, these two work. And, you know, everyone loves Drake Maverick from, you know, his whole, the whole contract thing, getting fired, coming back you know, winning the tournament or not winning the tournament, but coming up short, but then still getting that contract from WWE. He's just, he's been great. And, you know, I love this tag team. They could go to the moon. So Halloween Havoc was indeed great, but you know what? AEW Dynamite was really entertaining as well. So let's move on to that. Talk about what else happened Wednesday night in the world of pro wrestling. And for AEW, let's start with this number one contender world title tournament eliminator thing that they're doing. Um, you know, we got two more matches. We basically got the semifinals this past Wednesday, two damn good matches. The main event was really the banger. We'll save that for a moment. Let's first talk about the opening match, Adam Hangman Page defeating Wardlow. I think they, they got to be at this point really high on Wardlow considering he's opened the show two weeks in a row. And like last week, in my opinion, he was the star of this match even though Page was the winner. He missed that really athletic swanton that like flew him across the ring. He also dodged the buckshot lariat and got to hit Page with his F10 finisher, which was I thought was a nice piece of booking because obviously Page rolled out of the ring. But had he not, the insinuation is Wardlow would have beat 
Hangman Page in that moment. But Page rolled outside. He threw Wardlow across the ring from the top rope in a really good spot. Then he had to hit two buckshot lariats, not just one for the win. Wardlow was booked really tough. But ultimately, if you looked at it, he did end up losing in a 10-minute match to Hangman Page. So he was booked tough, but simultaneously not strong. Nevertheless, I was entertained by it, and it was good to see Page get the win, made storyline sense. And Wardlow, for me, he's, I think, one of the most unsung talents in AEW right now. People talk about MJF and how great he is. That's true. Wardlow's pretty great as well. And he seems to have a dry sense of humor too. So I'm very high on Wardlow. He was a guy that I didn't know a ton about before he came in AEW. Um, you know, he came in as kind of MJF's muscle and, you know, was that all he's going to be? But then as the months go run on, maybe, maybe the last six months, he, you know, kind of blossomed into his own and has had some really great matches, like, you know, beat Jungle Boy in his first qualifier, which was a fairly entertaining match. And, you know, this one as well, he, he didn't miss a beat, even though it was kind of short. He had that nice spot where he kind of dodged Hangman Page and then speared him through the guardrail. That was kind of a cool spot um, after Hangman had just put him into the uh, ring post. You know, so, you know, right off the bat, you know, a lot of action. It was a very, like you said, it was only 10 minutes, but still it was a very entertaining match. And, you know, notwithstanding if, you know, Hangman Page doesn't roll out of the ring, he gets that win and, you know, gets that upset. Obviously, we know with booking, you know, chances are we're looking at the Hangman rematch with Kenny, but, you know, Wardlow definitely held his own and he impressed me and it's the last several matches. He's been awesome in my opinion. Now, we also had Kenny Omega defeat Pentagon El Zero Miedo. Uh, Omega taunted Penta with the AAA Mega Championship that he won off him, which I thought was a really that was awesome. ni- nice start and a nice touch to the, the beginning of the match. They fought outside the ring during the commercial break. Omega hit a tope con hero. Penta flew off the top rope to the outside. Omega drilled Penta with a V-trigger. Penta got out the, of the one-winged angel, but Omega kicked him into the middle turnbuckle and hit him with another V-trigger to the back of the head. This match for me did start slow, but it really picked up especially as we got towards the finish. Uh, Penta had the move of the match, jumping off the top rope or the middle rope, I forget which, but hitting Omega with a Canadian Destroyer onto that carpeted ramp. He then hit Omega with the package pile driver for a 2.9 count. Omega bounced back with a V-trigger, but Pentagon reversed a second one-winged angel and then snapped Omega's right arm backwards. So Omega sold that arm well throughout the rest of the match. Penta countered a V-trigger with a super kick but Omega caught a springboard from Penta with a V-trigger and then hit the one-winged angel for the one, two, three to advance to the finals. The only thing I thought was slightly down in this match was Omega was doing such a good job selling the arm. But when it came to hitting the finisher that needed the arm to reach around and grab Penta's head, he didn't sell it at all. So that was the one moment where I said, hey, you did such a good job with everything else. I wish he had done that as well. It's fine. It's a minor gripe. This was a damn good match, and it was a great job by AEW giving this a full 20 minutes. Two of the best wrestlers in the world went at it and had a great match. This has not compared to prior Omega Pentagon matches that I've seen, but it was great. It was probably 4.25 stars. I think 
maybe you can go to 4.5. Yeah, you know what? 4.5 stars because that finish was really great. For me, it was the second best match of the night overall. Io Shirai and Candice LeRae, for me, stole the entire night. This was number two. You may disagree with that. I'm not sure. But this was really good stuff. And ultimately, in the finals, we are going to get Kenny Omega versus Adam Hangman Page. And as my good friend uh, Triple H has said before, sometimes predictable things are good. Sometimes predictable things are good. Getting these two in a full gear match with the winner becoming the number one contender was predictable. It was so predictable, we thought it might not happen. In the end, it is happening. And it's happening because not only did Page beat Wardlow very deserving, Omega beat Pentagon in, again, you could definitely make an argument that it was the best match of the night, but it was at worst the second best match of the night. I would say it was the, it was the second best match of the night overall between the two shows. I mean, yeah, I kind of do agree with you with the one way in Angel. I did expect maybe that Omega would, you know, try to get Penta up and then maybe he wouldn't be able to get it over and Penta would, you know, squeak out and maybe, you know, they'd go for another minute or two and eventually Omega would hit the one winged angel, but still, I mean, it was a phenomenal match. I, you know, was despite a slow start was entertained from top to bottom. That destroyer was one of the best ones I've seen in a while. That was awesome. It was a great spot during the match. You know, it was just, it was a great match. And I think that setting that program for Omega and page, we knew we were getting it. Well, at least we figured we were getting it. You know, some people, I've seen fans on Twitter complain that, you know, oh, it's it's way too obvious. But for these two not to get involved for, you know, with so much on the line and a number one contender spot for the title, I think would just be selling the fans short. And I think they're they're going to be awesome and they're going to put out a banger at full gear. And wasn't didn't Phoenix beat Pentagon last week? Yes. And then he got hurt. Right. And so 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 Pentagon's filling in. So. I mean, what were you what were you gonna have them do? Have the fill in win? Yeah, exactly. And then, like, and then have Hangman Page versus Pentagon, which, by the way, I would kill to see that match. Like, oh, absolutely. I, I, I want to awesome. see that. I want to see that very badly. But you couldn't have Wardlow beat Page, and you couldn't have anyone else beat Omega, and you didn't want them to fight in the middle of the tournament. And if you're gonna do a number one contendership tournament, you have to have Kenny Omega and Page in there if they're not gonna be a tag team. So you had to pull the trigger on this now. And look, yeah, sometimes things you may want to develop a while, but this has been developing a while. They were a tag team for a long time. They had issues as a tag team for a long time. How much longer do you want this to go? This is long-term booking. So I don't know why people are complaining about that. It was an entertaining match. It's been an entertaining storyline. And I'm happy that we're now getting this match at full gear, which by the way, not only is it a loaded card, it's way more loaded than the last event. So full gear, they've done a great job. They have a lot of um, goodwill to make up from that last pay-per-view, which really kind of sucked, if we're being honest. I think Full Gear is going to absolutely tear the house down and have a chance to be pay-per-view of the year when we talk year-end awards on this show. So very excited about it. Very excited about the main event that we got on Wednesday night. Let's talk about everything else that happened on AEW. You had John Moxley and Eddie Kingston again kind of cut promos against one another. Moxley was absolutely killer. He told Kingston to basically protect his neck because Moxley doesn't just crush necks, he crushes egos. And AEW is for people who work hard and deserve opportunities, not people like Kingston. In stark contrast to NXT, like I said, there was almost 18 minutes before the first commercial break. This was part of that, and it was great. We also got Kingston cutting a promo, but his was kind of repetitive. 
and a bit tired, which look, Eddie Kingston, fire on the mic every single time. It, it was well said, well spoken here, but it didn't feel like there was any new material where Moxley's felt like it was new material. And then coming out of this, we went into the Eddie Kingston match against Matt Seidel. Seidel got a couple 2.5s after a top rope Meteora and a crucifix pinning combination, but Kingston caught him with a spinning back fist and then Moxley's bulldog choke submission for the win. Then after Kingston made Seidel submit, he made him quit on the microphone. So it was strongly built, you know, in my opinion, momentum for Kingston, though Seidel kind of got jobbed out. They made this big deal that he debuted and all he's done is lose. And it's like kind of what's the point of him even being there? So, you know, whatever for Seidel, but for Kingston, it was a nice big moment. And he looks like a legitimate challenger for Moxley's AEW World Championship. Eddie Kingston has cut a lot of the same promos, but I still don't get tired of it because he said he's absolute fire on the mic everywhere he's every promotion that he's been in he he's absolute fire you know you never get tired of hearing the same thing but at the same time I thought it was a nice little touch at the end of the match to use Moxley's move to submit him then make him say I quit as if you know to have Seidel stand in for Moxley it was just it was a good piece of booking in my opinion and you know I think these two are going to put on a great match and you know obviously Eddie had to point out that he that he never tapped, that he, you know, he basically just went unconscious. And that was the way that match ended when they fought the first time. And, you know, but I just think that these two, these two are going to bang it full gear. There's no doubt about it. They are. It's going to be a, a bloodbath in that match. And the question is, you know, it is an I quit match. So presumably it's no holds barred. They can do whatever they want. The question is, how extreme is it going to get? Because some Moxley matches we've seen in AEW have taken it almost a step where it didn't need to go, not too far, because it is 2020, they're not going crazy, but almost a little bit over what's necessary. The Omega match really stands out to me. Some don't, and some are just brutal for the sake of being brutal, but it works within the the context of the match. That's what I hope this one's going to be at full gear, but full gear, still a little bit out. We will have a full gear preview on the show. Staying with AEW Dynamite, FTR and the Young Bucks basically did like a socially distanced interview segment with Excalibur. This was okay for me. Uh, FTR got frustrated. They weren't being asked questions, so they just left. Matt Jackson, the the reasoning they got for being heels recently was basically that they were in a bad mood. You know, if, if WWE did that, they'd be called moody, like Aleister Black. And it just, I thought it was really kind of stupid, to be honest with you. Matt Jackson then goes out of nowhere, adds a stipulation that the Young Bucks will never fight for the AEW tag team titles again if they lose to FTR at full gear which is the exact same stipulation that Cody had against Chris Jericho for the world title one year ago at the exact same show. So where if this was WWE, I may have thought they they did it accidentally without thinking. With AEW, I'm going to give them a little bit of credit. I'm going to grade on a curve and say that this was done on purpose. But I'm wondering what the purpose of doing that is. What's the storyline behind the Young Bucks doing the same stipulation that Cody did? Maybe in this case, the Young Bucks are going to win. But they just brought in FTR, just put the titles on them. Are you really going to change it that quickly and have the Young Bucks win? Whereas I think going with Omega and Page was not too soon. I actually do think going FTR Young Bucks is too soon. And I'm a little surprised that they're moving it so quickly to this point. But I am excited for the match. I'm not exactly sure what the finish is going to be. What I will say is once Matt Jackson announced this stipulation, not only was the segment weird, 
Excalibur didn't even sell it. He didn't even come up like, whoa, what are you talking about? Why would you do that? Ask a follow-up question. They just cut the segment and it ended. So I, I thought that was weird altogether. I've been a big fan of the Young Bucks character change. I was not at all a fan of this segment on Wednesday night. Now, it kind of did leave a little to be desired, in my opinion. Just if FTR wouldn't have gotten up and left, maybe it wouldn't have been as bad, but still it wasn't it wasn't great, in my opinion. I don't think it accomplished a whole lot. I mean, the only thing we really got out of it was, you know, the young bucks saying the old young bucks are back, you know, and if they don't win the titles, they're never gonna challenge again. Um, so I just I don't know. I I feel like it was wasn't unnecessary, but it it left a little to be desired. And you know, are they going to win the titles? With the fact that like Cody can't ever challenge for the AEW title, are you really going to have the Young Bucks? You know, not be a fixture in the tag team division, at least as far as the titles are concerned. Right. It wouldn't make any sense. That's uh, you're taking two of your heavy hitters. Like I get you don't want to have like you know Cody and the Young Bucks. They're you know front office guys too. They're they don't want everybody in the front office holding those titles. But at the same time, like the young bucks are too good not to ever be in the tag team title hunt. So, I mean, SCU were tag team champions. Cody won the first TNT title, lost it only to win it back. And they only took it off of him because he wasn't going to be on TV for a month. So they can talk about like not overbooking themselves because they're VPs. And Omega is probably the best example of that being the case. But by the way, Omega and Page also tag team champions, right? So they can talk about that, but it doesn't, it's not really the case. Like, I'm not saying they're holding anyone down. They're not holding anyone down. But they have every right to want to feature themselves and every right to be featured. And I think they've done a pretty good job not overly featuring themselves, but simultaneously still keeping themselves in big matches. So I have to believe the Young Bucks will win this. But again, this isn't the uh, full gear preview. We'll get to that eventually. But I just, this segment just didn't work for me. FTR is too good. Young Bucks are too good. This was not good. This was not a good segment. And honestly, we're going to move over to the Inner Circle Town Hall. Largely, I don't think this was that good either. Uh, MJF and Sammy Guevara to open the show. They went face to face. MJF calling Sammy little buddy a hundred times while they're basically standing face to face and the exact same size. I thought that was really funny. And then he drops that killer line. Oh, what's wrong? The guy who looks like he sells Adderall to middle schoolers my favorite, is my, upset. Oh my God. That had, I thought, me, that had me rolling. I thought it was one of MJF's all timelines so far in AEW. And I mean, that's kind of what Sammy looks like. So it was pretty damn funny. They also kept teasing the eventual split with Wardlow in that opening segment. So that was funny. But let's actually talk about the town hall. This started awkwardly. There was a lot of piped in noise that was way too loud to be real. This was a taped edition of Dynamite. They taped it last week. And there were many times where it sounded very loud, even beyond what WWE does by piping in crowd noise. When WWE does it, they keep it relatively low for ambiance. AEW tried to make it sound almost as if they were at a full arena. And it just didn't really work for me on many occasions, but especially during this segment. They did a play, I guess, on the NBC town hall with that guy. Um, Eric Bischoff showed up again for the second time in a... Chris Jericho type of segment. Uh, MJF admitted he's not a good team player, but thinks he can become one if he joins the inner circle. Jericho set a stipulation match for full gear where if MJF beats him, he can join the faction. The rest of the faction was pissed. MJF countered he'll do whatever it takes to win and really hammered that home. 
I just didn't love it. Um, you know, I saw people did love it. So if you did, that's great. For me, it was re- really weak. I was really buying into the Chris Jericho MJF stuff. The dinner debonair last week, I didn't necessarily love it, but I appreciated the creativity and I did think it was funny and I thought it was totally appropriate for it to be on a wrestling show. I know people disagreed. This was one segment too far when they were doing the town hall, even though I know what a town hall is, I kind of thought it would just be inner circle arguing with themselves about like an an inner circle town hall just within their own members, like discussing the merits of MJF being there and MJF being allowed to make his case, almost like a team meeting. Instead, they're having Luchasaurus ask questions and Britt Baker and, and um, I forgot her sidekick's name off the top of my head right now. For some reason, I'm drawing a blank. But them asking a question, then Eric Bischoff coming out to ask four questions. It was just a, a little bit too much for me. The only part of the segment I really liked was Ortiz. Ortiz was the winner, grabbing the mic, tearing down MJF, challenging them to a tag team match next week and saying that he won't even make it to full gear. But for me, this was mostly repetitive and a big step down from the Chris Jericho MJF segments we've been getting for the better part of a month. I didn't love it. I'll just say that it wasn't an absolute failure, but it certainly wasn't anything that, you know, raised my eyebrows or, you know, grabbed my attention. I thought it would have been like more interaction with the inner circle. Like it was basically just Jericho would answer the questions and that was it. Aside from when Ortiz grabbed the mic, like you'd start off the show with Sammy Guevara and MJF cutting that promo. And like Guevara says, he's never, he's going to make sure MJF never joins the inner circle. And, you know, I would have liked to have seen like, you know, Sammy step up to the mic and say something to MJF or, you know, take that a little bit further from the top of the show. So I just, I didn't, I didn't love it. And then, you know, Eric Bischoff shows up, you know, it's comical. You got the WCW angle. He's shows up for the second time and, it's okay, but it just doesn't, it didn't do anything for me. Like, I don't know. I just, I just didn't love it. And then we get the Ortiz and Guevara are going to take on MJF and Wardlow next week, which that match should be pretty good. And I'm actually looking forward to that one, but yeah, it just ultimately left something to be desired. And honestly, something else that did that as well was the team Taz promo. They cut a strange promo telling Will Hobbs his time was running out and to make a decision. It's basically the same thing every week with them. And I said this last week, they're on this Lance Archer, Jake Roberts road where AEW is making sure they're always on TV, but every single week they're talking and not doing anything. And it's just like, what kind of group is this? If you can't put Brian Cage and Ricky Starks in a tag team match against a couple jobbers and just have them squash them or, or put Brian Cage in a singles match against someone or get, let Ricky Starks get over with a win over Frankie Kazarian or something like that. It just, it feels like they should be doing more with the individuals. Lance Archer as well. It's like if he's not involved in a specific program or he is heavily featured, the the only way you see them is just in the crowd or cutting a promo. And a lot of the promos are basically about nothing. It's like Seinfeld promos. So I don't know. I just, I kind of hated the Team Taz thing. I love them. I love all three of them individually and together. I just didn't like what they did with them. No, I completely agree. And I mean, my my biggest thing was, you know, Every week, you usually have Taz on the, you know, on commentary, you know, and then when Brian Cage has a match or what, you know, Ricky Starks, whatever, that, you know, he's that heel commentator and, you know, constantly like tooting their horns of Team Taz. And we didn't get that this week either. It was just kind of a stale promo that didn't do much for me. I mean, I'm in, 
guess I'm interested to see where this thing goes with Will Hobbs, but I, I didn't love it. And just, I don't know, why can't they, like you said, why can't they just have a match where, you know, it doesn't even have to be a squash match. Just, you know, have them, you know, the two of them, maybe they get over and, you know, like they defeat Jungle Boy and Luchasaurus or something, you know, something, somebody else that's not like in the title picture. I don't know. I just, I I don't know where they're going with the team Tazaggle at this point. AEW's roster is enormous. There's so many people that they can fight and beat. And it's just, it's crazy that they're just not using people like that. I, I don't really get it. Um, moving over to the TNT title match, Cody defeating Orange Cassidy again in a lumberjack match. I've already said my piece about Orange Cassidy getting a third TNT title match in like five or six weeks. So I'm just not going to repeat it. If you want to hear that rant, you can go to last week's show. It was nice to see Orange Cassidy kind of not doing his BS for a change right at the start. Uh, Cody and him had some really great action, especially once the bell rang at the very beginning. There was a vertical suplex off the top rope to the outside, which crushed like 20 people. It looked like a stage dive more than a wrestling move, but whatever they did it, it was pretty cool. Back in the ring, Cody hit a cutter. Orange Cassidy bounced back with the stun dog millionaire, a diving DDT and his beach break finisher, but Cody kicked out at 2.8. So now you've had Orange Cassidy lose to uh, Brody Lee. You've had him lose to Cody. And now you've had Cody kick out of his finisher. Dark Order comes in and interferes behind the referee's back to cost Orange Cassidy the title. Arn Anderson hits Orange Cassidy with his clipboard despite Arn Anderson and Cody presumably being faces. Um, Cody hits Crossroads, gets the win. So all of that happens. Cody ends up winning via interference. And Orange Cassidy has now lost three TNT title matches. I'm thinking, okay, maybe they're going to make it a triple threat because he got screwed at full gear. No, they're not doing that. Orange Cassidy is going to have a match on the buy-in against John Silver. The match was good. The finish was fine. I'm not really into what they're doing here or Orange Cassidy at all, really, anymore. I'm kind of just like Orange Cassidy on this, whatever. Like, They took a guy who was wrestling Chris Jericho, has two out of three wins over Jericho. They have him lose to Cody twice. And now he's in a buy-in match on a pay-per-view as opposed to a match on the main card. So I, I, I think that they pushed him too hard too fast. I thought that from the beginning. So it's almost no surprise to me that he's now having a little bit of a fall from grace. But if you're AEW, you can't be booking someone that hard that fast because you need to know they're going to have a fall from grace. And just look at what's happening to him right now. I mean, I'm not saying he should have been, been TNT champion. I don't think he should have been. And I don't know that he really should ever have a title. But if you're not going to put a title on him, just like The Fiend in WWE, don't put him in title matches. Work around it. And that's not what they're doing with him. For him to have this many title matches and lose all of them, it just killed any momentum that he had. And he did have momentum coming out of the Chris Jericho feud. The Jericho match was great. You know, Mimosa Mayhem, it was it was entertaining. And, you know, then you figure, okay, you know, they're going to shoot Orange Cassidy to the moon and give him a big push. But then to have him lose this many TNT title matches, it's just... It's almost like, what's the point? Like, where are they going to go now? Now he's going to take a step down and feud with the Dark Order in some at some sort of way, I guess. I don't know. It just doesn't make sense. Like, maybe if they're involving best friends, maybe it would work. But they're obviously in their own programs. So I just, I just don't know really where it's going. And at the same time, like, why didn't they ease Orange Cassidy in, you know, kind of gradually build him up? Instead, they shot... They shot him to beat Chris Jericho, then, you know, but then he loses a couple TNT title matches and 
like you bring up the fiend orange cassidy isn't going to cut a promo he's just the whatever nonchalant hands in his pockets and that's it like at least the fiend has a crazy personality that you could play off of but what are you going to do with orange cassidy all he does is wrestle and shows up and gives a thumbs up or thumbs down and that's it i mean right don't know where they're going to go with it you're right like the fiend is able to on the rare occasions he loses, or if there's a title situation, the fiend Bray Wyatt is able to explain that type of stuff. Now, Orange Cassidy can cut a promo too. Like he does talk occasionally, but that's not his gimmick. It's really not his gimmick to right. be cutting promos and trying. And he's really the matches that he's had, the storyline that they've told with him is really the opposite of his gimmick. He's trying to win titles. He's tried three different times now. He tried to help the best friends in that parking lot brawl or, or street fight, whatever the hell that was. So He's almost playing against his own type, and I'm okay with that. But really what should have happened is Jericho should have beaten him in that match because after that, even even though he lost to Jericho, Cody, uh, he could have said you know, to Cody, hey, I almost won. And Cody could have said, you know what? You're right. You do deserve a chance. And given him a shot anyway. So you're in the same spot you would have been. It's just, it's really, look, I'm not a huge Orange Cassidy fan. I wasn't. But I did like that they were giving him a chance to get over and they were giving him pretty strong booking. But man, I mean, if you if your eyes aren't open and you don't see that they, I don't even want to say the word ruined, but they ruined the momentum that he had, then you're kind of just biased because they've ha- they've done it. They kind of ruined the momentum with Orange Cassidy. It's kind of sad to see. Um, and it's really kind of against type also for AEW to do that. And I think this is, Failed booking and failed storytelling. But you know what? Maybe they'll surprise us. I'll hold out hope a little bit. It's also a little strange that Cody needed Arn Anderson's clipboard to beat Orange Cassidy in a TNT title match. What's the point of putting it back on him if he needs that much help anyway? But that's another topic for another time. Sticking with this type of stuff, uh, Miro and Kip Sabian attacked best friends again. They're still upset about the fake video game console being destroyed. I just hate the way Miro's been introduced so far in AEW. I did like Penelope dressed as Orange Cassidy. I thought that was funny and it was a good look for her. But I don't care one iota about this feud. I assume Miro and Kip Sabian are going to win. But then what are you going to have happen there? You had best friends get over on Santana and Ortiz, only to then lose a title match to FTR, only to possibly now lose to Miro and Kip Sabian. So you've taken best friends in Orange Cassidy, which kind of carried you for about two months, and you've just dumped them off a cliff. At least that's what I think is going to happen. Like when, like back to Orange Cassidy a little bit, but back when he first got, you know, when AEW first started being on TV last year, he was just a manager that was kind of there. He was in the background. And then I feel like out of nowhere, he got shot to the moon. And then same thing with best friends. Like they, you know, have the, you know, say what you want about the street fight match that they had a couple weeks ago. Like it was decent. And for them to come out with the win and then, you know, get knocked off by FTR, but then they're taking a, I don't want to say it's a step down to be in a program with Miro and Kip Sabian, but it kind of is at the same time. And then, you know, after that, like where, where are best friends going to go? Where, you know, is that a big feud win for either one? Like if Kip Sabian and Miro win that program is like, where are they going to go from there too? So I don't, I don't know. All of it just seems confusing to me. Yeah, no, me too. As was the next thing, Serena Deeb uh, defeating Layla Hirsch in a non-title match. Uh, so I mentioned this earlier, but they took, or I did, I was going to mention it earlier, but I didn't because some news came out. I'm not going to get into the news, no dirt sheet stuff, but Thunder Rosa dropped the NWA championship this week. And there's some talks that she either is going to 
signed with AEW where she may jump to WWE, but NWA says she still has a year left on her contract. So no one really knows, but she did lose the NWA title to Deeb. Um, I'm not really sure why she would have dropped the title to Serena Deeb if that was the case and she wasn't going somewhere, but we will find out. But in typical AEW fashion, I've now noted this, I think six weeks in a row, seven weeks in a row, I'm honestly losing count and I'm going to stop counting. The first and only women's match on the show comes approximately three quarters of the way into the show. This one was an hour 20 minutes in instead of an hour 30 like normal. But okay, now we have the women's segment. Uh, The match was short. Deeb won with a single leg crab submission. It's cool, by the way. I got to give her credit that she's the NWA women's champion. and She's back wrestling after kind of leaving the business. She goes to WWE Performance Center for a few years as a coach. Now she left. She signed with AEW. She's the NWA women's champion. It's really cool. I don't really have much to say about the match other than that. But after the match, uh, AEW women's champion Hikaru Shida cut a grand total of a nine-word promo challenging Nyla Rose at full gear, a match we've been waiting to see for two months because they just haven't given it to us and have decided not to tell any type of story with it. So that's the entire build that we're getting now for a women's championship match on one of the four annual pay-per-views. I stress it every week. The women's division in AEW sucks. The booking is horrendous. You saw it in this match that happened kind of out of nowhere. You don't even know why that Deeb versus Hirsch is on the show. And you have Britt Baker who could be wrestling, but she's not on the show. And you have Hikaru Shida, the champion. Oh, guess what? She's back. She barely speaks. And now they're throwing a match on the pay-per-view that should have and could have had a storyline over multiple weeks, but they just chose not to give one. So horrendous stuff. Um, I haven't hit this all show, but despite me being critical of other points of AEW, haven't really hit it. I'm going to hit it here. Zero point zero. They're just killing me with their women's wrestling. I just, like, it just boggles my mind every week. Like, they just don't care about women's wrestling. They, like, they clearly don't want to have women featured, whereas, you know, obviously WWE's been around forever, but they, you know, shot their women's superstars, you know, through the roof the last couple of years. And, like, AEW doesn't, like, I know that's, you know, the talent pool isn't as big, obviously, but it's like they don't even try most weeks. And it just gets frustrating that, like, the build up to this title match against Nyla Rose is, you know, like you said, a nine word promo. Like, you can't do better than that. It just, I don't know. It just pisses me off every week. And the fact that, you know, like, they have somebody like Britt Baker, who's a great heel, but, you know, unless Sheeta retains, like, what is she going to do? So, like, I don't know. I just get frustrated every week that they clearly just don't have any intention of booking any type of strong women's storyline. It, it's crazy because I book the damn territory all the time when we talk AEW, uh, sorry, when we talk WWE about things WWE could do better, stories they can tell. Nyla Rose got Vicky Guerrero as a manager about three months ago. And somehow ever since that happened, she's been on TV less than she was before. And now they're trying to say that the storyline, and, and they didn't even have she to tell the story. They had the backstage commentator tell the story. Um, but now they're saying the storyline is Nyla Rose refused to wrestle until she got a title match. Okay, maybe that would be an okay story, but you're doing it retroactively. Why wouldn't you just have Vicky Guerrero come out and say for multiple weeks, we're waiting, hey, uh, Tony Khan, we're waiting for you to book the match. Uh, Maybe even he books a Nyla Rose match against Serena Deeb. And I was like, I'm not competing. The only 
The next match I compete in will be for the AEW women's title. Then you bring out this other woman. She takes Nyla Rose's place, loses to Serena Deeb. And you hear, hey, Khan's going to go ahead and say, okay, yeah, the match is going to go. Nyla Rose versus Hikaru Shida at the pay-per-view, at full gear. Like, it's very easy to tell that story, but they haven't bothered. That's the biggest issue. It's not really that there's only one women's match per show. It's that there's no storylines in the women's division. And even when they are, there are some, they're stupid. And then when you have the two biggest women that are healthy, active in your company right now, Nyla Rose and your champion, Hikaru Shida, and Britt Baker's bigger than both, but you know, one's a title holder and Nyla Rose has gotten more, I think, TV mat or, or pay-per-view matches than any other woman at this point. When you have both of them in a program and you can't even create a storyline about them until after the fact, it tells you all you need to know about their women's booking. So really shame on them. And again, I just gave you a storyline off the top of my head that they could have been running for the last three or four weeks. And again, Guerrero has been her manager for months and nothing's come of it. Somehow we've seen Nyla Rose less on in terms of in the ring and cutting promos with Vicky Guerrero than we saw her before she had Vicky Guerrero. So this doesn't make any sense. Uh, last segment, last thing to talk about from AEW, Sean Spears defeated a guy, I think his name was CSK. V- I don't even know if that's right. I think it's, um, v- I thought it was VSK. VSK. Not, not that it matters. I never, I, I knew nothing about him. So GSK, VSK, whatever, SK. Uh, he had a Death Valley driver and won in like 20 seconds. A guy in a bull costume throws candy at him. So he dragged him into the ring, loaded his glove with that steel or metal object. Turns out to be Scorpio Sky, who hits a TKO. Fine with a mid-card feud, but they've done nothing to make me care about it. I don't know why, you know, they were staring at each other previously backstage. Maybe that's a story they're telling on AEW Dark that I haven't seen. But just as I talk about with WWE, if you're going to do something on one show, you've got to tell us about it if you're going to bring it over to another show. So like WWE, they were telling stories on 205 Live, but then having Cruiserweight matches on Raw, but they weren't telling us how they connected. Same thing here. If you're going to do something on Dark, and I don't even know if this is a Dark storyline, but if it is, you got to tell me that what the storyline is so I understand it while I'm watching your actual program. Because guess what? 700,000, 800,000 people watch AEW Dynamite. About 120,000 people watch Dark. So all those other people, no pun intended, are left in the Dark. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a Dark watcher either. I don't you know, I've, I've never watched it. I'll be honest. It's just, you know, not on the priority list with all the other wrestling and everything else, but they just like, you've got two guys, you've got Sean Spears, you've got Scorpio sky two very, you know, guys that are talented, but they haven't done anything recently. So like, they're just automatically in a program together. Like Spears shoots a dirty look at sky backstage when they're gone, when FCU is going out to the ring. Like it just doesn't, like, there was no storytelling whatsoever. Like, why are they feuding? I still, you know, I don't know if anyone knows that answer. So it's like, I just, I don't know where they're going with that. And whatever, you have a Sean Spears squash match once in a while. But if you're not going to actually explain where the storyline is going, like, what's the point? Like, how long has he been with Tully? How long has he had this glove now? Like, they're just, maybe this is the start of them telling something, which is great. And I hope, I really hope it is. But I'm just I'm just frustrated with stuff like this. And by the way, I did not think, I really did not think when I started talking about AEW, I was going to be this critical about Dynamite. But it does turn out that there were things I, I, I didn't really like on the show. Really, everything with the exception of the, those two world title, number one contendership eliminator matches, those ruled 
the Moxley Kingston stuff, that was really good as well. And I guess there were parts of the Town Hall and the Cody Orange Cassidy match that I liked, but really everything else on the show wasn't very good. And I think this kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the start of the show. Just because I'm finding things to criticize for AEW doesn't mean I don't like the product. Doesn't mean that it's unfair criticism. I think everything that we said today is pretty fair criticism for a product that really one of the things it's promised its viewers is you should set the bar higher for us. We're going to be better than that other thing that you used to watch, perhaps if you're someone who only watches AEW. We're not going to leave holes in storylines. We're not going to treat things as as dispensable. But kind of when you watch the product, it seems like they're doing that in many cases. So that's basically the, the wrap up on AEW. It was a really good show. There was a lot of really good wrestling. I think some of the storytelling needs a little bit of work. And you know what? Something else we've noticed, when AEW goes live, it's usually better than when it's taped. And this was indeed a taped episode. So maybe it's almost a situation of they tried to plan it out too much and thought about it a little bit too hard. Whereas when they go live, not so much that they're operating off the cuff, but there's less of a period of time to second guess things. Maybe they second guessed or changed things a little bit too much here. But yeah, I just found a lot of things that I wasn't too fond of on Wednesday night from AEW, but it still was a good show. Yeah, I mean, usually most weeks, like it's not like, I can't say like I necessarily pick one over the other. It's like, you know, if NXT's got a stack card that I really care about, I'm going to watch that first or vice versa, you know, watch it live, whatever. So you flip, you flip each week, depending on which one you think is a better card before the show starts. Yeah. For the most part, I don't, I won't say I always watch, um, you know, I always watch them back to back. Sometimes the next morning I'll watch the other one, but I mean, you know, within 12 hours I've watched them both and I'm not, I want to say more often than not, I watch NXT first, but it does depend on the card. Like there's something I really don't want to get spoiled if I'm not watching it live, say I'm, you know, coming home a little after it starts. I don't want that to get spoiled. So I'll, you know, watch whatever I'm more intrigued by. But regardless, like that shouldn't have any impact on the type of product like AEW needs to do storytelling better. They need to have it where, you know, fans are like, I'm definitely watching AEW. I don't care what's going on on the, you know, on NXT. I'm definitely watching that. So I, no, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. I do want to clarify something just because I think it may have gotten missed among the criticism. Serena Deeb and Layla Hirsch. The match was good. Like, I, I don't oh, want it to get, I, I don't want to get lost in that. I'm just crapping all over AEW's women's division all the time. The match was actually really well wrestled. And Layla Hirsch, she's not someone I've ever seen before. I hope she actually gets a contract because I would love to see her develop a character, get a gimmick and actually be part of the AEW women's division. So they deserve a lot of credit for putting on a good match. And Britt Baker previously, she her matches maybe weren't great, you know, but her presence on AEW now that she's back healthy and wrestling again, it's a much needed return of a presence. So there have been some bright spots in the AEW women's division. I don't want to gloss over those just because I'm being critical of the storytelling and the booking. That's where I had the biggest issue on Wednesday night. But Deeb and Hirsch, it was a good match with a good finish. Both of them looked really strong. And I was glad to get that women's match on TV. I still think, I do think it was the third best women's match of the night. Both on NXT were better, but it was an entertaining match. No, it definitely was. And, 
it's hard not to have that taste in your mouth where AEW's women's division just, you know, kind of disappoints constantly. But at the same time, like, if you just look at it from a wrestling standpoint, like, I'll be honest, I didn't know who Layla Hirsch, I didn't know anything about her prior to yeah, that match. I'm like, is this going to be a squash? Is, you know, Serena Deeb just won, just got the NWO Women's Championship. Is she going to squash her in, you know, three or four minutes? But it was a much lengthier match than I thought it was going to be. And, you know, it was wrestled very well. And, you know, I thought when, like, when Serena D was on Dynamite in the past, like, I was fairly impressed. But I was really impressed with her. She more, like you said, I think if they gave her a contract, I mean, yes, she's an unknown. But that's somebody you could build up and potentially put in a good program. And maybe that, you know, makes the women's division, gives them a little more credibility. Yeah, now the takeaway from Wednesday night was we got two really good shows. Halloween Havoc, NXT was the better show top to bottom for me. But another takeaway is it was a really good night for women's wrestling because we got three women's matches. All of them were very entertaining. Um, It's just that it's really tough for a Serena Deeb versus Layla Hirsch non-title match to go ahead and compete with Io Shirai Shotzi, uh, sorry, not Shotzi Blackheart, Io Shirai and um, Candice LeRae, and then Rhea Ripley and Raquel Gonzalez, which we've been waiting like two months to see. So tough spot for them to compete with that, but it was a good match and they deserve some credit. So that's it. We talked a lot here about NXT, Halloween Havoc, and AEW Dynamite. I appreciate Chris Bangle for joining me on Getting Over for the first time. Chris, tell them again how they can follow you on Twitter. Yeah, first of all, Adam, thanks for having me on. Awesome to absolutely go through an epic night of wrestling that we got. You know, both both shows ended up being very good. Halloween Havoc obviously was superior, at least in my opinion. But you know, we got a we got two great cards that provided some epic wrestling that you know we'll have fans talking. So if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's C CBS. And of course, you can also follow me at Silverstein Adam. But most importantly, follow this damn podcast at Getting Over Cast. And by the way, one other piece of business before we get out of here. You know what it is. Stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. Go back to being a mark for me. Go back to being marks for the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Head on over to Apple Podcasts. Drop us a five-star rating and review on this show. It is all about the five. Thanks once again to Chris for joining me. This is the Silver King. I will see you on Tuesday with another WWE episode of Getting Over. With that, I only have three words left for you. Bye for now.